messages this morning, and as I have uh, mentioned to you in the past, we're kind of doing a flyover of the Old Testament to see the particular ways uh, in which the whole Old Testament uh, comes together to tell the story of salvation leading up to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, if things uh, go well and, and we fly fast, uh, we may be at the birth of Christ around Christmas, or maybe next Christmas. <laughs> it's just, you know me pretty well, but we'll see how far we get. Um, as we come to Judges, we were looking at some of the things in Joshua in a little more detail, but but that book ends, and then there's this period of time that goes on. It's, it's about another 400 years, and uh, as... Uh, we are led into the narrative in the book of Judges, we see the continued decline of Israel in terms of spirituality and in terms of a relationship with God. Israel is just headed downhill. And uh, I know it's easy to read the scripture sometimes, and, and we read about these uh, goofballs, in the Old Testament, and we read about these crazy people in the New Testament, and and we say, man, I would never act like that. And I, I've got news for you. Um, they're just people. And uh, nations and people groups, uh, all of us share the same kinds of problems. And if we don't keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, if we don't focus on the Lord, all of us are inclined to drift. Remember the hymn that the hymn writer wrote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Uh, what you may not know about that hymn is that's the very thing that happened to him. He wandered away and toward the end of his life denied the faith. And um, he felt that within himself. Uh, and uh, so that's our tendency. If you take your eyes off Christ, you're going to be headed down the same road. So I think we have to be slow to be critical of people that have fallen off the path. Because uh, as soon as we take up that judgment, <laughs> we may find ourselves right there with them. And uh, we need to, to be gracious and kind and and generous uh, in terms of our love uh, for people that are struggling with staying on the way. On the other side of the coin, though, uh, when people get off, they can really get off. And Judges is one of those books that talks about people really getting off. I mean, I think some of the craziest and most bizarre stories in all the Bible are found in the book of Judges. These weirdos did just nutty stuff. And you kind of scratch your head and say, how could they do that? Um, it's a very sad chapter in the history of Israel because what they're following is what we today would call situational ethics or moral relativism. Now, an overview of Judges, this is not all the Judges by any means, it's not even all the book, it's only about half the book, or two-thirds. 
But when you begin to look at uh, the book of Judges, essentially what was happening was the Israelites as a people group were wandering from God. And they were doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They, they were just in mass disobeying. And so as a consequence of that, God would allow the um, other nationalities of the land of Canaan to kind of take over for a while. And uh, the point was to make them miserable. It was a judgment to make them miserable and to cause them to cry out and ask God for help and deliverance. You know, when things are going really well, it's really easy to forget God. But when things are going really tough, um, that's kind of when we, we recognize we need some divine help. And... The Bible says the goodness of God leads us to repentance. But the flip side of that is, if that doesn't work, if the goodness of God does not motivate us to appreciate Him and love Him and follow Him, then He will take His hands off and let the inevitable consequences of our behavior grow and bring a harvest of consequence. That's not because God hates us. It's because God wants to get our attention one way or another and bring us back. And that's what Judges is all about. Um, The people go off after other gods. They serve the Baals. They do everything God told them not to do. And then they finally come to their senses and say, we're in trouble here. Uh, these foreign nations are ruling us and wearing us out. And we need God's help. We need God's deliverance. And God would raise up what was called a judge. And that person uh, would primarily be given the anointing and skills of war and deliverance. And uh, he or she, as the case may be, would uh, be involved in bringing Israel back out from under the, the harsh rule of the foreign nations. And so I've listed a few of them here for you. Othniel, um, Israel served Kushan Rishathaim for eight years, and he was a horrible taskmaster. Uh, from the tribes of Canaan, and God raised up both Nile to deliver him. And then there was Ehud. I'll never forget Ehud. Uh, Ehud was one of those fellows that showed up on the Bible knowledge content exam uh, for all incoming freshmen to most of the Bible colleges around the country. It was a measure uh, of uh, how much you knew about the Bible so they could place you properly. And uh, it always asked the question, who was the left-handed judge? Well, it was Ehud. <laughs> Ehud was the left-handed judge. And uh, the reason that factors into the story is um, Eglon, who was the king of uh, the Moabites, was a very, very fat guy. 
he was really big. And uh, Ehud uh, made a sword. It was a cubit long. Now, a cubit is the distance from your elbow to the tips of your fingers. It's about 18 inches for the average person. So there's the blade. And then you've got the hilt and the handle. And so you've got a sword about this long. And he sharpened both sides of it. He made a double-edged sword. And uh, they had uh, kind of a dignitary visitation. And uh, he went to visit Eglon, the Moabite king. And uh, toward the end of the uh, occasion, he said, I've got a secret from God to tell you. And uh, all the other people left the room. You know, Eglon gave them the nod and they all left the room and closed the doors. And Ehud went to greet him with his right hand. Now, there's a, there's a lot of tradition, but you know why you're um, supposed to keep your right hand up where people can see it? Because that's your weapon hand. And you shake hands right to right to symbolize that you don't hold any weapons against the person you're greeting. So Ehud goes to extend his right hand and as Eglon draws near him, he whips the sword out of the right side with his left hand, his, his dexterous hand, and he thrusts it in so far that he buries the whole sword in his belly. This much. I mean, that was one heavy dude. And it, he buries the sword in him. And then he goes out of the room, closes the door, and uh, kind of leaves things uh, as they were. And uh, some of his servants eventually show up to check on him, and they think he's just relieving himself. You can read all the gory details of the story, and I'll let you fill it all in. But, um, yeah, you can figure that one out. And uh, finally they go back in a little later and find him dead on the floor. And... Uh, Ehud is a long way away. Barak was a man that God called to deliver the Israelites from Jabin, king of Canaan, and Sisera. Uh, by the way, I got too many A's in Canaan. That's easy to do. You can take you can take uh, one of the A's out of the first syllable. But um, he was uh, to go up against. Uh, Sisera, the commander of, of Jabin's army. <laughs> but he wouldn't go without Deborah. He says, I'm not going out there by myself. I need you to come with me. And, and you got to understand the times. Deborah says to him, oh, okay, I'll go. But if I go, I'm going to get the credit. And it's going to be said that a woman triumphed over uh, these people of the Canaanites, and that's up to you, Barak. Uh, Barak, if you want me to go, um, I'll I'll go with you. But that's how the thing's going to turn out. Well, sure enough, that's how it turned out. But I give uh, I give all of these three judges. That this is just my valuation. I give them a plus symbol. Nothing bad is said about them. They did what God called them to do. They accomplished deliverance for Israel, and uh, really their, their chapter, their story is relatively short. 
But then we come to Gideon and Abimelech and Jephthah and Samson. And this is where it really gets weird. I have thought to myself many times that God would choose people that he could use. And yet, when I think about the people he had to choose, it's amazing to me. He is using people to accomplish his purposes that are wacko. And if that's the best (laughs) that the nation has to offer, what were the worst like? Because when you get down to Gideon, Gideon was, I'm sorry, he was just an outright coward. First of all, he didn't want to do what God told him to do. And so he had to put a fleece before the Lord. Now, I often hear a lot of people say, I I put a fleece out. Listen, don't pat yourself on the back for putting out a fleece. Gideon heard God and he didn't like what he heard. (laughs) So he wanted proof. He wanted God to prove to him that that was his voice. It's a a sign of weakness, if I may say so. And what Gideon did was he put this sheepskin out in the field and he said, Lord, if this is really you telling me to go up against these uh, people oppressing us, let the whole field be wet with dew, but keep this fleece dry. So he went out in the morning and fleece was dry as a bone. And he said, wow, that was too easy. (laughs) Think I'll try it the other way. Lord, I'm going to try this one more time. I'm going to put this fleece out there. I want the dew to be on the fleece, but the whole field to be dry. Okay. He goes out the next morning, fleece is wet, he can wring the dew out of it, but the whole field is dry as a bone. Well, there's not much he can do to counter that, so he decides to go along with God's plan. And uh, he amasses this huge army, and God whittles it down to about 300 people. And now all of a sudden Gideon is getting bold. Uh, He's talking about the sword of the Lord and the sword of Gideon. But Gideon was hiding in a threshing floor (laughs) when God found him to put him to work. And uh, now he's uh, ready to go to battle, but uh, somewhat reluctantly. Um, Gideon not only needed a double test with the fleece, but when he finally defeated the enemy... He took uh, the precious metals from the spoils of war, an earring from every one of his army, uh, one earring, maybe that's where that got started, I don't know. I don't know if it was the left or the right, I'm not going there. But um, he took an earring and he made an ephod. Now, an ephod is normally something you wear. It was something the high priest wore. It was the breastplate that had the jewels in it. So apparently Gideon made this, this ephod out of, these, uh, out of gold and silver, and he made this, this, uh, this jeweled item that became a, an idol. And it was the snare to the Israelites. So here the guy starts out weak, he ends up weak, and the very instrument 
that testifies to the goodness of God ends up leading the Israelites into idol worship. Gideon just made a mess. Abimelech, um, he decided he would declare himself king. There was not a king in Israel yet. He decided he would be king. And uh, so he had a bunch of brothers and he killed them all so that there wouldn't be any contest to his kingship. Great guy, not the one you want for a brother. Jephthah, he's another one of my favorites. Jephthah, actually, I don't know why, but he reminds me of Jethro on the Beverly Hillbillies. He's kind of got that kind of mentality. I mean, he's, he's a little weird. And so when God gets a hold of him and tells him that he wants him to go out and fight, um, Jephthah actually makes a deal with his family because they'd kind of thrown him out, and he makes a deal to get all of the property and possessions back. And then he makes a, a bargain with God. He says, God, if you'll deliver the enemy into my hands, the first thing that comes out of my house when I return, I will sacrifice to you. Now, I don't know if Jephthah kept sheep in his living room. I don't know what he was thinking, but who's going to come greet him? He's got one daughter. And he says, the first thing that comes out of my door when I return, I will sacrifice to you. What did he think was going to happen? Lo and behold, as he comes back from his victory and the word is spread, out of the door comes running his daughter to greet him. And Jephthah is just torn with grief because he's promised to sacrifice her. And uh, she says, well, let me uh, take some time and go spend it uh, with, with the Lord and in quiet. And then I'll come back and you do with me whatever you've promised. And, and the implication is that Jephthah sacrificed his daughter as, as a sacrificial offering to God. Now... Number one, God did not require that. Number two, Jephthah had a way out. The scriptures in the, in the Mosaic Law and Covenant give a way that if you've made a foolish vow, you can, you can get out of it through humility and a sin offering. You can recant of your stupidity. Okay, but he didn't do that. He followed through with his numbskull plan and ended up most likely killing his daughter. Uh, The scripture does not give us a reason to think otherwise. And then we get to Samson. Samson, man, he was a disaster. He I put down here he was. A proud womanizer who brought grief upon himself. He he had a number of women in his life. Let me just put it that way. And he ended up, more or less with a prostitute, ended up confiding in her his secret that his long hair was part of the Nazarite vow and his secret to strength. What did he think she was going to do? She cut it off while he was sleeping in her lap. Duh. 
And when he woke up, the the Philistines came in and took him captive because he had no strength. Took him a long time to grow that hair back. And uh, finally he pushed apart the pillars of the Philistine uh, temple and brought the roof down on their head. But he spent his whole life chasing women and making a mess of things. And yet he was the man that God used uh, to deliver the uh, Israelites from the Philistines at that point in time. So you look at you, you look at all the stories in Judges, and the key verses that stand out. Uh, it's repeated twice: Judges seventeen six and twenty one twenty five. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his. That's supposed to be own. O-W-N, in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You know, it's a sad state of affairs when people do what they think is best, given the circumstances. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God really never intended for them to have a king. Uh, Israel was to be a theocracy that was led by God alone. But he had told Moses, he said, they're going to get in the land and they're going to want a king like all the nations around them. And they're going to reject me as king over them. And they're going to want a king appointed. And at the end of Judges, uh, we have this little short book of Ruth and then we move forward into Samuel. And Samuel was really kind of like the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. But he was told by God to anoint Saul as king. And uh, in response to the people who finally said, if we just had a king, everything would be right. Well, it wasn't, and and it was not the solution. But at any rate, they're blaming it on that fact. And every everyone did what was right. In his own eyes. The title of my message today is, When You Think You're Right, You're Wrong. And you have to read that the right way. (laughs) When you think you're right, you're wrong. Because we are not right. We always get it bollocked up if we rely on our own wisdom or our own understanding. In fact, the scripture says, do not lean on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge God, and He will direct your paths. Our CNMA statement of faith says this, the Old and New Testaments, inerrant as originally given, were verbally inspired by God and are a complete revelation of his will for the salvation of men they constitute the divine and only rule of christian faith and practice and i want to remind us this morning that as soon as we begin to doubt the word of god as soon as we begin to uh, introduce into our ideas 
those which are contrary to the revelation of Scripture, we weaken the fabric of the whole. You say, what does it matter if we believe that evolution is the method that God used to develop life on this planet? Well, let's just say for argument's sake that it could go either way. Quite honestly, if you read Genesis 1 to 3, it can't go either way. There's no way, there is no way that you can get evolution out of Genesis 1 to 3. You have to get direct creation. But let's say you, it could go either way. What does that immediately do? It opens the door to question many other things in the Scripture. Well, that could have got been wrong, so maybe there's some other things that we need to evaluate. And all of a sudden, the Bible becomes open to our judgment as to when it's right and when it's wrong. And friends, we're not that smart. We are not that smart. It's not science that is the final authority. It is not medicine that is the final authority. We are being told today that so many of the problems that God brings judgment for are genetic in their origin. All right, so what? We want to relieve blame. We want to take responsibility away from people by saying, well, you have a genetic disorder that has predisposed you to these problems and you can't help it. I'm here to tell you this morning that you can help it. Jesus Christ can deliver you from anything that leads you into moral failure. He can deliver you. You cannot blame that on genes. You may have a problem that is more acute than someone else because of a genetic predisposition. But if you are trusting God, you cannot blame on your genetic structure your misbehavior that the Bible calls sin. God will deliver you from that sin. He will give you the grace to rise above it, even if you have a weight pulling you down in a particular area. I could spend a lot of time this morning talking to you about depression. I'm very, very acquainted with clinical depression. There's a history of clinical depression in my birth family. I have the genes for it. I've been there. Uh, I'm a card-carrying member of the clan. I have the t-shirt. Uh, I, I get it. But I also have learned that when I put my eyes on Jesus Christ, there is victory in Him. And I do not have to live in that dark pit. I can walk in victory in Jesus Christ. I, 
I know that that has distressed people through the years when I've said that. And if you're struggling, my heart goes out to you. I, it really does. I, I'm not being critical this morning because finding that way is, is a journey in itself. And it took me years and years. So I, I do not fault you, blame you, or criticize you. But I want you to know there's victory. There's victory in Jesus. It's not psychology. It's not culture or democracy. Democracy is the rule by the majority. That's not how you figure out what's right or wrong. It's not the culture that determines what's right or wrong. We look at the Bible and what do people say today? Well, that was then, this is now. If, if the Bible were written today, it would be written differently. For example, take homosexuality. That used to be a big, terrible thing in the Bible days, but we know that it's normal today. We know that, that certain people have uh, those uh, predilections uh, since birth. That's not the right word, but it sounded good. <clears throat> they, they're predisposed to go in that way from birth. Friends, we have got to have the common sense in interpreting the Scripture to separate the moral from the non-moral issues of culture. I'm not going to argue with anybody over hair. Even though the Scripture says it is a shame for a man to have long hair. I don't care if you've got it down to your waist and you put it in a ponytail. It, that is a non-moral cultural sort of idea that was true to the Corinthians to whom Paul was writing. And there's a message there for us that has nothing to do with long hair, but it has to do with the way we live our lives and the example that we set. But when it comes to homosexuality, that is a moral issue. And the Bible is plain about it. It's absolutely clear. It is sin. It is immoral. It is ungodly. It is not natural, and you're not born like that. You may be predisposed. I'm not going to argue that. I haven't seen the evidence for or against it, really. There are a lot of people trying to sort it out, but... It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Many of you um, quote uh, and read um, the writings of Henri Nouwen. And uh, you think the world of him. And really he had a lot of good things to say. He was a Catholic priest who had a lot of insight. And many evangelical believers... Uh, are enamored by him. He struggled with homosexual feelings his whole life. But may I tell you that he did it right? He struggled with homosexual feelings, but he never acted on them. He never acted on them. And there's a profound difference. Moral issues, I don't care what's going on inside of you. 
in the power of Jesus' name, you do not have to act it out. The Bible is the final authority. It's the last word. It doesn't matter what the law says. It doesn't matter what the executive branch enforces. It doesn't matter what the judicial branch adjudicates. It doesn't matter. The Bible is the final authority. It trumps the government. It trumps science. It trumps medicine. It trumps psychology. It trumps culture. It is God's word on the subject, the end. And we have to come to that conviction as followers of Jesus Christ that we are going to obey the Scripture. Situational ethics is our own invention. Well, a thing is right or wrong depending on the circumstances you're in. If it's wrong, it's wrong. If it's right, it's right. No matter what it costs you. Moral relativism. I can do whatever feels good to me. I'm my own uh, destiny. I'm the one who decides what's best for me. No, you're not. God has a standard. And one day, you will be judged by that standard. That standard is Jesus Christ. And if you choose not to put your faith and trust in Him, it doesn't matter what you think. One day, you will be judged by that standard. And as you stand to to the bar of justice, God the judge will determine whether you have lived up to the standard or failed. And, And there's no waffling or gray in that moment. A thing is clear. These views that we hold are as old as humanity. What did Cain say? My brother raises sheep, I raise vegetables. I'm giving vegetables. God didn't say you could give vegetables. He says you have to offer a blood sacrifice. Cain had a choice. His choice was to buy a sheep from his brother with his vegetables. And then to offer it to God as a blood sacrifice. Didn't matter that he raised vegetables, his brother raised sheep. When it came to sacrifice, it required blood. That was the revelation God gave them in the Garden of Eden. It requires blood. And so, Cain said, I'm not doing it. I'm going to make my own way of worship. I'm going to write my own ticket. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. I ought to be able to decide how I can sacrifice. And so he brought vegetables. And then when God didn't accept his sacrifice, he got ticked and killed Abel. Situational ethics and moral relativism is as old as the Garden of Eden and Cain and Abel. It goes all the way back. And human beings have been following it ever since. And it ultimately denies the wisdom, sovereignty, and lordship of God. 
In the book of Judges, there was no king in Israel, so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That was the deal. We're going to do what's right in our own eyes. Nothing could be further from truth than to write your own rules and make your own ticket. God has made it clear how we're to live. And there are no exceptions. There are no extenuating circumstances. If abortion is wrong, abortion is wrong. I was talking with my son, Jonathan, a little while back, and he was talking about some of his friends who insist that there are circumstances when abortion should be acceptable. Uh, what if a woman's raped? Uh, do you want to go through the difficulty and emotional trauma of the pregnancy and have the baby? I would not be here today if abortion was justifiable in date rape. I would not exist. I would have been murdered in my mother's womb. Because I was born to a single mom who was dating an airman who took advantage of her. Is it right to carry out an abortion in a situation of date rape or any kind of rape? Is it right to carry out an abortion when the amniocentesis demonstrates that there's a trisomy uh, genetic issue and the baby is most likely going to be born with Down syndrome or worse? Ask parents of Down syndrome children. Is it tough? Yeah, it's really, really tough. But often those are the brightest, most beautiful children because they have a way about them. You can't justify a thing based on the circumstances. If abortion is murder, it is always murder in every case. That's the end of it. Now, does that mean I'm hard-hearted and don't have compassion? <laughs> it does not. I'm tender-hearted, and I have a lot of compassion. And I've seen what happens to the women who have the abortion. And that's not pretty either. So you've got to pick your poison in a sense. And you can expect the blessing of God and His courage and His strength if you choose the right path. What am I saying? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. No, that's not the way to live. You do what's right in God's eyes. That's the end of the story. And that's the conclusion. Tammy, would you come lead us in closing prayer, please?